Thank you for tuning in again to the Rocky Brown Ministries podcast. I am Rocky Brown. <clears throat> you get to talking, don't record anything, then the next thing you know, you get to the house and you're like, man, I got to re-record this thing. And it's not about, that's not about ego. It's, we're trying to get the word across the world. Last I checked, and I ain't checked in a while, but last I checked, that podcast in 40 countries on six continents. And I'm trying to figure out how to get it to Antarctica, bless God. Now, these people on Antarctica, we get it on Antarctica, we'd be in seven continents. So, but has anybody really got anything from this disobedience study? Have you, have, I mean, it's astonishing when you start looking at it. And so... I want to go back. I feel like it's important to reiterate, you know, we, we took some primary texts, if you'll remember, that set kind of the whole standard uh, for, this, for this series, right? And so go to Galatians chapter 9, and let's, we're going to start there. And then the Lord impressed on me last night that there's another thing that he wanted me to share too that will tie to this. So if I go to Galatians... My Bible is not wanting to cooperate. Chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6. All right. Now, it, now it really, we started at verse 7, but really, I, I want to look at verse 6, 7, and 8 right here. And 9. And 10. Let's just read it up. All right. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Now, it's interesting here that the Spirit of God has just been talking about teaching, 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 the one that's been taught. The teacher and the one that's been taught, right? That's what he's talking to. He says, now don't be deceived, all right? So what does deceive mean? Deceived genuinely really means you know something to be the truth, but you allow yourself to be convinced that it's not. Or you allow yourself, you know something's not true, but you allow yourself to be convinced that it is true. Okay? Like, Grace is a substitute for sin. That's not true, but many people have been deceived into believing that even though they can't find that in the Scriptures, and you can't find that in the Scriptures, that grace is a substitute for sin, so that way they can keep on living in disobedience and, per and sin keep permeating their life, right? All right, now watch what it says. So do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. All right? For the one who sows to their flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. All right. Now, people get hung up on the word commandment. And when they think commandment, they think the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> but really, a commandment is a command that's issued to you by the Lord. So then James 4 and 17 says, For the one that knows to do good and does not do it, to that person it's sin. Well, we know that sin is disobedience. You knew to do good, you were disobedient, you didn't do it, and now it's sin, right? All right, so right here, the Spirit of God tells us, don't be deceived. So if you know you're being deceived, you're automatically in disobedience. You could say it like that, couldn't you? All right, so if you don't, if you say, well, you know, I don't believe in that sowing and reaping business, well, you're in trouble, right? You got trouble. That's exactly what it says. God is not mocked. He said, so you're not going to mock God with your actions and 
the way that you're conducting yourself and the way that you're carrying stuff and the things that you're doing and all this different stuff, right? God's not going to be mocked once. Now listen to me very carefully. And this will help a lot of people if you'll just listen to this and get a hold of it. Once God shows you something in His Word, you are, that is now required of you. You can't go backward. Once He shows you, hey, you know what? I, I, you're doing this, but you don't need to do this. You need to be doing this. There's no retreat. Because once you see it, and you know, everybody, anybody do that? You ever, God show you something in the Word, and you're like, oh, help me, Jesus. What am I going to do now, right? But once you see it, now it's required. So now when it's required and you don't do it, now you're in and disobedience, right? So it's important to understand that. And, and you could readily see why so many people have so much trouble in their life. They see something in the Word, God makes it known to them, and then they retreat from that. And they don't do what they're supposed to be doing, right? That's why a lot of people have a lot of trouble. Now you'll remember that the Lord said that for disobedience produces fruit, right? So the longer you let that disobedience grow, the greater the fruit. Just like a plant, right? You let that, you sow that corn seed, you let that, you tend to that corn seed, that corn seed after about six, it's going to grow five, six months. I mean, you get up in Ohio in September, the corn's nine and a half feet tall. Come from a little old seed, ain't that big? Well, our disobedience does the same thing. We sow disobedience, and then we don't ever do anything about it, and it grows and 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 grows, and the next thing you know, what started out as something here is big, no bigger than a corn seed, now nine feet tall, and you're like, oh my God, what am I going? You got a Goliath standing in front of you. You know, Goliath's nine and a half feet tall. You got trouble. But so instead of people saying, okay, I wish more people taught and preached this, so I didn't have to. Really, to be honest with you. Uh, but someone's got to do it. So you've got to know that there's fruit of your disobedience. And the longer you continue in disobedience, the greater the harvest. And now you're going to get to a point, you're going to have to, you get to a certain, you get to harvest time, right? You know, you can go out, sow that corn seed. You know, you can go and, you can dig that up anytime. You can dig it up anytime. You don't have to let that corn stalk get nine and a half foot tall. You can go in there and you can dig it up anytime. So then how do we dig up disobedience and sin so that we don't reap major fruit from it? How do we do it? Well, we let the Word show us where we're wrong. Holy Spirit shows us where we're wrong. And what do we do? We say, okay, Lord, I see that I'm wrong. And now I'm going to repent. And I'm going to quit this and I'm going to start doing what's right in your sight. You've showed me where I'm wrong. Now I see where I'm wrong. I'm struggling with this. Lord, this is like trying to whip a gorilla and I can't do nothing with it. I need your help. Now, interestingly enough, I watched a video last night that said a giraffe could beat a gorilla in a fight. I don't know that that would be the truth. I'd interestingly like to know that. But <laughs> I know, right? So, but when we think about this, if we will arrest the disobedience, dig it up, get rid of it, you may have something you're struggling with. You know what? That's what grace is for. Do you realize that? That's what true grace. That's what grace is truly for: is to help you overcome. That's what grace in the scope of the New Testament is. It's a it's a supernatural empowering touch from God to cause you to overcome, to fill you with a to possess you of an unfailing strength to ward off, to defend, to protect, 
to cause you to be content. All the, see, that's what that does. That's what grace truly is. Grace is never, ever, ever, ever a substitute for sin. Paul told you that in the sixth chapter of Romans. He said, what should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid. Well, if grace was a covering for sin, then someone didn't tell the Holy Spirit that. Because he said, don't continue in sin. See that? So then, interestingly enough, we've got to see where we're wrong. But you know what? You'll never have that happen until you commit to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart willing to receive correction. Right? So it says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For as you sow, so shall you reap. You sow a corn seed, you're going to get a corn stock. Well, uh, unfortunately, with disobedience, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Because see, like the Lord told me a couple weeks ago, and he said, now the problem with disobedience is, he said, it's not like a regular seed. He said, you sow disobedience, you don't know what's coming up. You don't know what's coming up, you don't know where it's coming from. See, you sow an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. Corn seed, you're going to get a corn stalk. Disobedience, you don't know what you're going to get. Because see, ultimately, we proved in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, let's go there, that's the next book. Let's just go right there, let's just keep rolling, let's keep proving this. See, we want to prove what we're saying in the light of the Scripture. All right, so Paul says this in the fourth chapter, start at verse 25. He says, therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. All right, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now look at verse 27. Nor give a place to the devil. Now that would tell me right there that sin and disobedience opens my life up for a place for the devil to get into. Can we agree to that? Is that what it says? If I open it, if Mark is standing on the other side of the door knocking, and I go and I open the door, I've, I have now given place for Mark to walk through the door. All right? So think about it like this. Grace is God's supernatural power to cause you to overcome sin, disobedience, and all of that stuff. But your obedience to God keeps the door of your life closed to the destroyer. Now, we don't want to hear that. Why? Because we want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to be told that what we're doing is wrong. No one wants to be bossed around, do they? Right? Not even by the Lord. And that's the biggest problem with God is that we ain't listening to heaven. The Lord trying to help you, trying to keep you from destruction. And we're basically just, you know, who do you think you are? I mean... Uh, you know, what do you know? You just created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, you know. See, interestingly enough, we have a far greater part to play in our life than God does. Now, let me say that again. I know that's an astonishing statement, but we have a far greater part to play in our life than the Lord God does. Why? Well, He's not going to make you be obedient. So who's going to have to do it? He's not going to, he's not going to keep, a play, keep you from giving place to the devil when you're doing it knowingly. So who's going to have to do it? You go back up there to verse 25 and it says, Therefore put away lying and let each one speak the truth. Well, if you choose to lie, he's going to let you lie. Ain't he? Isn't he? Now he's going to try to minister to you, keep you from doing it, but ultimately the choice is in your hand. 
So then that would tell me I got a lot bigger role to play about making sure that I'm obedient and to do what the Lord has told me to do and don't do what he's told me not to do. Right? So, all right, so then Galatians, remember, says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And then it says, if you, you know, you're going to reap what you sow, right? All right, now, here's the thing. You have to remember this. Prolonged, write this down. You are a child of God. If you've been born again, you're a child of God. All right? Now, prolonged disobedience is going to inevitably invoke judgment from the throne of God against you for correction. What did I? I know, I got a big mouth and I talk fast. My grandpa, interestingly enough, was an auctioneer, you know what I'm saying? Hey, and I got a five and a sick and a five and a sick and a five and a half and a sick and a five and a half and a sick and a sick and a half and a seven. And so you see, man, I get it. And then I just get the Holy Ghost coming, man, I just don't know why I'm going this way and that way and every which way. All right, so what did I say? Uh, okay, all right, so you're a child of God, all right? Now, when you enter into the realm of disobedience, the longer that you stay there, you are invoking a judgment from God against you. Now, we don't want to hear that. We want to sing all these songs. God's my buddy. God's my friend. Jesus is my bestie. No, Jesus ain't your bestie. Jesus is the Lord. He's the king of the universe. And if you do what he tells you to do, then you and him's tight. But if you ain't doing what he's told you to do, you got trouble, right? So think about it like this. Almost all of us here have children, I think. I'm pretty sure. But so you think about it like this. You let, you, you, you know, you let Preston, you know, Preston may go to the door and you're like, you're trying to drag him back. Well, you know, he gets out here and tries to go down the stairs. Well, you're going to get after him, aren't you? Well, now, all right, now think about it like this. Now, you turn your back, and Preston gets down the stairs and out the door and out here to the road. Well, you're going to, I mean, that kid's going to get a beating. When he, I, I mean, he's just going to get a whipping. You get a hold of that kid, I mean, he's going to be striped, ain't he? Well, now, he wouldn't get the same treatment if he just went over here to the door, would he? All right, so the further he went in disobedience, number one, the greater the punishment that came, but judgment came against him, didn't it? All right, so that's important for us to understand that our disobedience will automatically, the Lord's going to be like, hey, you need to fix this. Holy Spirit's like, hey, fix this. You're going one month, two months, six months, and then finally, he's going to bust your W's. That's a good rodeo expression. You know what that means? That's usually when a guy got kicked in the seat of the pants and he's, as he's went out the back door. And wranglers have W's on the butt cheeks. That's what she call it. Getting your W's busted. That's a good Donnie Gay uh, announcer rodeo expression. Now, ultimately, you could see that God is a good God. And God's a good Father. And He's not putting sickness and disease on people. And He ain't killing people in earthquakes. And He ain't killing people in car wrecks. And all this different stuff. No more than you'd take Preston out and kill him for doing something wrong. Your Father in Heaven ain't like that. But now judgment, he will bring judgment against you. Now, you want to see that, don't we? We want to see that because, see, we need to see this in the light of the Word. We don't, we? All right. So go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, this is another one of our primary texts. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12. All right. Now, 
Starting at verse 3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons or children. My son or my child, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. All right, now that's correction. So he says, now when the Lord's correcting you, number one, you need to recognize you're wrong and the Lord's correcting you. All right. And it says, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Well, you know what? Sometimes the Lord's going to say, hey, he's going to get after you. He'll do it. For whom, now listen, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He corrects. And every and scourges every son he receives. All right, now scourging. Go look up a Roman scourging. That's a, that's a tough punishment right there. Now it says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons or children. For which child is there whom a father does not chasten? Doesn't correct. But if you were without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not children. So it says, if God's not correcting you, you're in disobedience and sin. You got trouble because you're not even born again. So you're not even being corrected by God. And a lot of people really, I am afraid that the percentage of people that are sitting in the church that are church members are not born again, that's not born again, is extremely high. I'm afraid that percentage is extremely high because I see a lot of people doing a lot of stuff that's like, you know, okay. All right, so it says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So he said, All right, if you took correction from natural fathers, how much more should you be willing to receive correction from the Father of all spirits? Because you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. Okay? All right, and it goes on to say, For indeed, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. All right, now listen very carefully right here. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, so sometimes the Lord is going to correct you, and it's going to be stern, and it's going to hurt. It, I, I mean, when you got your butt whipped as a kid, it hurt. And I had a grandma that, I mean, you took her, you unhooked her, boy. And I mean, you had to use up again it. I mean, there wasn't no telling what she'd whip you with. Bless God. I mean, and I loved that woman. I mean, I loved her. But now I tell you what, old Betty Reed, she whipped you with a coat hanger, a Hot Wheel racetrack, a yardstick, her hand. I'm telling you what, she hit me. This is the truth. I'll tell you a funny story on me. Where was we at? I feel like I was being picked up somewhere at a friend's house. And I don't remember the details. And maybe it's because of maybe it's short-term memory loss because of the, the uh, hit I took. But uh, I was arguing with her over something. And I was about 16, 17. I don't know how old I was. Somewhere in that. But I was a mouthy teenager. And I said, I ain't a effing doing it. And I'm telling you what, mister... I mean, she's a little old bitty woman like Mandy. And I'm telling you what, I, I mean, she climbed me like a stepladder. Boy, I mean, she jacked my jaws. She slapped me so hard and so fast, I looked around like that old Chris Rock, Jackie Chan video movie there where, you know, that guy kicked him and he's standing there, got that dazed look on his face, and he said, which one of y'all hit me? I didn't know what. I mean, she just slapped my jaws, mister. 
And from that, and, and now, now I had it coming. I had it coming. But now I tell you what, there's old Hank Williams Jr. song said he got an attitude adjustment and sent me on my way. And that's exactly what happened. Old Betty Reed adjusted my attitude. And you know, even from that day to the day they died, you know, I never cussed around her after that, but best I can remember. I never smoked in her house, nor dipped in her house, nor nothing. I love that woman better than anything. Gosh, I miss her. And she was a sight. The devil steered clear of part of Champaign County, Ohio, because of that woman. I'm telling you. I mean... I mean, she was a she was a firecracker boy, but see that that correction hurt. All right. So sometimes the Lord's chastening us and is correcting us, and sometimes it hurts. It's gonna hurt, right? Sometimes. And the more disobedient that you are, and the the scale of disobedience gets worse and worse, the greater the correction. Now, it's important for you to understand. And I don't know if I covered this this last week, but I do believe that in week one or week two, we talked about this, that there's an old saying in the church that says sin is sin in the eyes of the Lord. All right, well, that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, excuse me, the Bible doesn't even remotely infer that. Never does the Bible even remotely imply that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. Now, you could go back to Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you could look, and you could look at different characters, and we're going to look at different, we're going to look at David tonight, but you would see very easily that God dealt with different people and their disobedience in different ways. The more severe their disobedience was, the more severe the judgment that came against them. If you went back to the Mosaic Law and the Levitical system, you'd come to find out that they were such sins that, were, that was so meager in the sight of God that all it required was just to offer a flower and maybe a bird. All the way up to if you're caught in the act of adultery, you take both people outside the city gate and stone them to death. Now, it, would that tell you that, uh, wouldn't that tell you that there's a differential of sin in the eyes of God? Certainly it would. Right? I mean, you wouldn't have to be smart enough to read the cat in a hat to, to see that. You see what I'm saying? But here's oftentimes what happens is, is that people say that because they're trying to justify something that they're doing. That's oftentimes where that comes from. That's usually the root that that comes from is that, you know, they're off in sin, they're doing something, you know, and, well, sin is sin in the eyes of the Lord. Well, the Bible doesn't say that, nor does it imply it. And you might just find yourself in hell if you live a life believing that. That's trouble. That's dangerous. Dangerous. See, that also, think about this. What's even more dangerous than that is saying... You're saying God's a blind judge and that there's no justice. See, if all sin's equal, there's no justice. See, if someone sins against you, hurts you, you, you know, there's no justice in the eyes of God. If all sin is equal, well, I mean, you go over here to Walmart and steal a $2 candy bar, are you going to get the same punishment for raping and killing a woman? Well, my goodness, if man's got enough sense to have better sense than that, how much more the Lord God? You see what I'm saying? So you can't... So you've got to be careful about how we project things. Because ultimately, we're saying that there's no justice in the sight of God. It's just, it just is what it is. Say la vie, blah, blah, blah. Right? Well, that's not true. And that's not right. It, now, the payment for sin covered it all, which is the blood of Jesus. Right? Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, His sacrifice, everything that He did. His sacrifice paid for all sin. 
But that certainly doesn't mean that it's all equal in the eyes of God. Okay. Now, uh, I want you to see one thing here. Now, if you was to go over to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, and then we're going to get to the main text that I want you to see tonight. <clears throat> and I know we've talked a bunch, but we're going to talk a bunch more. So take heart. I'm trying to get there too, Chris. Hang on. All right. 14th chapter of John's Gospel and the 15th verse. Now listen what Jesus says right here. Now listen very carefully. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Interestingly enough, there's an if here. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now the way you could say it is, if you love me, do the things I tell you to do. If you love me, don't do the things I tell you not to do. See that? Now, see, so you've got to remember that the commandments are whatever the Lord has commanded you to do. So he says, if you love me, do what I tell you to do. That's pretty simple, isn't it? All right. So then when we drop back, if we honestly analyze ourselves, <clears throat> how much does our disobedience or how much of our actual obedience is projecting how much we love the Lord? Now, I'm talking about in the everyday life. I'm not talking about the pictures that we put on Facebook and, and what happens on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. I'm talking about, you know, the Lord said to you at 8.15, hey, on a Monday morning, hey, you know what, give that person 10 bucks. And you knew it was the Lord. Right? See, it's the little things. It, we should set our heart to be obedient in all of our ways. And we're going to miss it, and we're going to mess up, and we're going to be, sometimes we're going to be in the flesh. But you know what, that ain't no excuse. Repent. And go, okay, you know what, Lord, I want to go 10 for 10 this week. <clears throat> I got to see, I, I mean, that's when I tell the Lord, you know what, Lord, I got a situation that's given me hell up one side and down the other, and it's drugged me all over hell and half of Georgia. But now, Lord, I feel like I'm 10 for 10. And if I'm 10 for 10, or I'm at least giving my best, then, Lord, I believe you'll honor that. Remember that? We seen that in Job last week. Blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned, turned away from evil. Says it multiple times of Job. Daniel found blameless in the lion's den. See that? Isn't it? So see that also go back to the original statement that I said that we've got a bigger role to play in our lives than even God does. Daniel was obedient. And his obedience kept him protected in, an, in the most life-threatening situation you could be in. Right? So Jesus said, if you love me, do what I tell you to do. And if you love me, don't do what I tell you not to do. Simple as that. Okay. Now, I, here's the primary thing I want us to look at tonight. Someone give me a time check. Oh, I'm good for another three hours. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. We're going to rip through this, okay? Now, 2 Samuel, <clears throat> and I want you to go to the 11th chapter. 11th chapter, 2 Samuel. And we're going to read a chapter and a half. But we're going to read and we're going to break it down as we go. Okay. When you're there, 
yell, winner, winner, chicken dinner. We're going to start at verse 1. <clears throat> Second Samuel, chapter 11, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to go by my notes. I, I'm, I've got some pretty serious notes here, too, that, that, I, want us to, uh, that I want us to analyze. All right. Everybody there? Ready to go. All right. It says, at verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that Je David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. All right, now, you've got to understand, David's been king for a number of years here. Now, this is also a man that one time the Lord says, a man after my own heart. At one time he said that. You know, sometimes we take something that someone says, that the Lord said about someone in a specific season and try to apply it to their whole life, and you're going to see ultimately right here that that is not, that's not the case right here with David. All right, now, you'll know that David whipped Goliath. The Spirit of God came upon David, whipped Goliath, and then Saul lost the kingdom. The Lord had Samuel anoint David king, and then a number of years later, David took the kingdom, right? All right, now... Then it, verse 2 says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and saw, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, I am with child. All right. Now, as I read this last night, the Lord spoke something to me, and, and I'm going to tell you, it just it, a, a shudder of, of just holy fear hit my spirit. And you want to know what he said to me? That's exactly what he said to me. He said, if you have people in your life who are willing to help you sin against the Lord, you better put them out the door. That's what them messengers right there did, didn't it? Is that what them messengers did right there? Did them messengers know who that woman was? Did them messengers know that that was a married woman? Well, they, did they know why David was sending for her at night after they'd done seen that he'd seen her out on the rooftop naked? He wasn't coming over to ask her for her cornbread recipe. Them messengers right there uh, see, them people, servants of the Lord. Now, them messengers right there should have just absolutely just bucked up against the king. What are they going to do? Going to kill him? Well, you know, 10th chapter of Matthew's gospel, it said, you know, you're better off, you know, don't fear the people who can kill the body. You better fear the one that can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. So the Lord said to me last night, he said, if you got anybody in your life, that's, he said, you tell them. If they got anybody in their life that's willing to help them sin against the Lord, you better put them out the door. Now, I'm not telling you cut family members off or whatever else, but you better set them on the outside of your life where they don't have reach to the inner parts of your life. You better put them out. Now, these people's dangerous. Because if they'll help you sin against the Lord, they, may, they might right, just walk you right into hell or into trouble like what's about to happen to David. All right. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Now what's, what's David trying to do? 
He's trying to get Uriah drunk so he'll go in there and sleep with his wife and pass the blame of this child. It's exactly what he's doing. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now listen what Uriah says right here. Uriah said to David, The ark and the Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, I know this came out as I was reading this. Poor Kenny popped in here on me. This is what the Lord said to me. Uriah's commitment to David was immeasurably greater than David's commitment to Uriah. I'm telling you what, King David is an absolute filthy dog in this stage in his life. He's, I mean, he's just a, he's just a, a cur dog. Now watch what he says. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today and also, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that next day. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So two nights in a row he's got, Joe, he's got Uriah drunk, tried to get him to go down there and sleep with his wife and pass the blame off for this child on to Uriah. And, and, and cover up this affair and cover up this sin in the sight of the Lord. That's what he's trying to do. Ain't no two ways to look at it. Ain't no two ways to cut it. That's exactly what the man's doing. In the morning it happened that David wrote, now it says, and he did not go down to his house. Now listen. Now listen to this. You think you, it, this goes from bad to worse right here. It says, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it, sent it, sent it by the hand of Uriah. David writes a letter. Uriah, take this to Joab, your commander. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from it, that he may be struck down and die. Now what should Joab have done right here? Hey, Jack, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're king of. I'm not doing this. This is an evil thing. This is a wicked thing. This is, this is a grave sin in the sight of the Lord God. So while it was Joab, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men, what did Joab do? He just did what the king told him to do. And sinned right against the Lord. Sinned against the Lord. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near the city when you why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Alright, now listen very carefully to this. Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say to Uriah the Hittite, the sir, you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and come out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate, 
The ar- now listen very carefully to the story that this messenger tells. The archer shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and Uriah and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as another. All right? Now, why is that so intriguing? The messenger said that he was killed by archers, and yet David said he was killed by the sword. He says, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. Now listen very carefully. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned her husband, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All right. So this event happens, right? This event with David and Bathsheba happens, and then within a couple days, you ride the Hittite, or within a six-week period of time, we'll know that that's about the course of life that it takes for a woman to discover that she's pregnant, right? So then David sends for Uriah after he gets the word, and then Uriah stays two nights, and then David sends him back and has him killed. All right? Now, it says that she bore a, a son to David, didn't it? All right? So what you're about to read here is at least nine months later. What picks up in chapter 12? Now listen. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. All right? Who's, who is this Nathan? Well, now... If you were to do a little bit of studying, you'd come to find out that this Nathan is a prophet of the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, David's a prophet also. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, now listen very carefully, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to it. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now look what verse 7 says here. Listen very carefully. It says, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now listen to carefully, because now here's coming judgment. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the whole house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with what? The sword. The messenger lied. The messenger that Joab sent lied. Joab put him in the heat of the battle with a valiant men, and he told him, he said, 
Joab didn't even tell him to say what he said. He said, you go and tell him that David was killed, or that Uriah was killed in the heat of the battle, and then the messenger took and added stuff that Joab hadn't even said and lied. He said he was killed by archers on the wall. Well, the Lord just said right here, he was killed with a sword. That's what David said. How'd David know that? Because him and Joab had conspired and he knew exactly where Joab was going to put him and how he was going to die. And you have killed him with the people. Now listen, he says, you have taken his wife. He said, okay, back up. He says, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and hath taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now listen very carefully. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So there, for, there was, it was questionable right here about what was about to happen to David. However, because, this deed you have give, because of this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is also born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed his house. All right. So then it goes on. It says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore, and it became ill, and David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he did, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servant of David, the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is this the child? Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. When he had requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then the servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said... Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? Now, isn't, that's kind of an astonishing statement from a man that has done what David has done and after everything the Lord has done for David. So he actually said right here, well, you know, I, would, I, I was just trying to see if maybe the Lord in this thing would be gracious toward me. Man, that's astonishing. But now he's dead, and why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Question mark. Shall I go to him? He shall not. Uh, I, he said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. All right. Now, I know there's a lot of content right there. But here's what we see. We see a man with a grave amount. This was not just one fold thing that David did. This was multifaceted. Not only did he have an affair with Uriah's wife. Then he tries to trick Uriah 
into going in and having sex with his wife so that, the, so that the, it looks like this child that's going to be born is Uriah's child. Then when Uriah, in his integrity and his character, does what is right in the sight of the Lord, then David writes a letter. David writes Uriah's death letter and sends it by his hand to the person who's going to execute Uriah. Isn't that something? And David said, you put him in the hottest part of the battle and then leave him. It didn't even say just put him in the hottest part of the battle. He said, you put him there and then you pull back from it. Then he took, of course, then Uriah dies. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. This was a grave, 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 very grave situation for David. And now the Lord promised him, he said, the sword will never depart your house. And now you read on into Samuel and so on. So, you know, you'll see that, I mean, David had trouble until the day he went home. He really did. And so ultimately what I wanted you to see here was is that judgment came against one who the Lord had said in the past was a man after his own heart. Was David a man after the Lord's heart in this season of his life? Absolutely wasn't. Was absolutely not. And that's something that we don't want to hear. Did judgment come from heaven against David? Yes, and it was, and it was, it was tremendous judgment. Tremendous judgment. Now, one last point I want to make here. There's a school of thought that says that David raped Bathsheba. Now, interestingly enough, for a season in time, I had entertained that and thought, you know what? That very well may be the truth. But then the Lord, as I was looking at this, the Lord called something to my attention. Had, follow me on this, had David genuinely raped Bathsheba against her will and she conceived a child, would the Lord have punished Bathsheba for something that, didn't happen, that she had no part in? So then the death of the child was a twofold judgment against David and against Bathsheba's willingness. That's something, isn't it? Now, this is an extreme case. But, you know, a lot of people go to great extremes in their own sin, in their life here today. It's important for us to know. Remember we talked about this? You know, we love to quote when that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, that's the same Lord that passed judgment, this judgment against David because his sin was so grave and so great. Right? I don't know if this disobedience thing is going to carry on another week. I'll just see what the Lord wants to say. But I really, really, really just want us, golly, I just want us to see and constantly be analyzing where am I, where am I disobedient? Am I being disobedient? Lord, am I, am, am I, am I being 100% obedient? Because you can be. You know that? 
Job was blameless. Job didn't have Jesus. He didn't have the Holy Ghost. He didn't have the blood on the altar. He didn't have salvation. He didn't have none of this stuff. And it says Job was blameless and upright before God, one who feared God and shunned evil. Well, if Job could do that in that season in time, how, how much the more so? I mean, we've got the blood of Jesus on the altar. We've been born again. We've got the Holy Ghost. We've got uh, supernatural grace. See this? We've got all this stuff. Problem is, is we've got too many people padding people's sins. And a lot of people are preaching against sin, but they're not preaching against even the menial disobedience, which is still sin, interestingly enough. So I just want you all to just go through and analyze your life and say, okay, you know what? The Lord showed me this. Now, I ain't done it, and I got to correct it. And the Lord showed me this, and I got to correct it, and I got to correct it. And I, I mean, do it now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Go home. Do it tonight. Lord, what do, you, what do I need to fix? Whatever it is, show me. Because I want to be pleasing to you. I want to be blameless before you. I want all your blessings flowing in my life. I want you to... I, and I don't want to give any place to the adversary. I don't give any place to the destroyer in my life. See that? Any questions? Let me stop the recording.